Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. This is my city. These are my people. I've seen a lot of things in this town. Things I don't like. Bad people taking advantage of the weak. Good people, down on their luck. Innocent people, suffer. I talk to God a lot. Sometimes, he talks back. So I ask him, when are you going to do something about all this? You know what his answer was? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. My name is Habakkuk. This is my story. I do want to welcome you to our new series, Habakkuk, and if you want to take out your Bible, you can turn there with me to the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you say it. It's page 652. You can say it either way, Habakkuk or Habakkuk. It's actually an Akkadian loan word, so either pronunciation is fine. We're going with Habakkuk, because you've got to say something. Uh, and it's kind of funny that we're going old school, Old Testament in the middle of the summer. I mean, summer is typically a time to just kind of relax and kind of chill out, take it easy. Uh, my wife, Colleen, and I, we were actually down the beach this week. We were celebrating our 11th wedding anniversary. Can we hear from my wife? She is, <laughs> she is a saint. We thank her, St. Colleen. It's funny, after 11 years, you would think we, we, you know, we've done a lot of growing up together, so we have a lot of the same habits, except for when it comes to beach reading. I don't know what you read when you're on the beach, but we have a massive disagreement because whenever we go down the shore on vacation, Colleen likes to go to CVS and get a bunch of what I like to call trash magazines. You ever see these? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I see, Janet. Okay. Uh, People, Us Weekly, In Style, that kind of stuff. We're like, you know, the, the cover story is, you know, on the John and eight, uh, John and Kate plus eight drama, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, uh, Jessica dumped on her birthday weekend. Who knew? Uh, you know, this kind of junk and everything. And this is Colleen's, you know, guilty pleasure. And I get it. We all need a little escape. So what we do is on the way down the shore, we stop at CVS and, and she comes to the counter with like a bunch of these magazines and I look at her condescendingly. I kind of roll my eyes, like, oh, please. And she's like, come on, we're going to the beach, just relax and everything. And uh, I, on the other hand, like, I bring all of uh, my newspapers. I get the Sunday Times, because I'm all about the current events. I'll bring back, you know, issues of, like, Newsweek and stuff. And I'll be like, you know, know, I open up my thing, and I'm like, I'm going to be reading on uh, the uprising in Tehran, I think. Uh, you know, kind of like I, I'm all into it. So when we go to the beach, we plop down our chairs. There's this like collision. What we're thinking about is completely at odds because she literally asked me this week. She was like, wow, I mean, who, who do you think should get custody of Michael Jackson's kids? And I was like, he has kids? And she's like, yeah. What, you know, yes, one of them is named Blanket. And, uh, and I was like, well, you know, who cares? He's kind of screwed. I mean, that's, that's like, that's, there, there's no way his life is destroyed already. This is hard. And she's like, I don't know. It just I'm, it feels bad for them. It seems unfair. And I was like, unfair? I mean, this, are you kidding me? I was like, look at my newspaper. And I pointed to this cover article on this couple in Florida named the Billings. Have you seen these incredible people? They adopted 17 children. This is a picture of them with special needs, developmentally disabled children, adopted them, brought them all into their home, and they were murdered last week. 
when some local uh, thieves actually did a home invasion, actually killed the mom and dad and left the 17 children orphaned. I was like, excuse me. I was like, that's unfair. That's the real world. I go, you, you, you read stuff like that, I go, and it leaves you shaking your head. And she was kind of quiet, and so I, you know, kind of sidled up a little bit more. I was like, yeah, I go, they're, they're knocking heads in Iran and everything. Look, joblessness is now double digits, okay? And, uh, you know, healthcare, or it's going to jack our taxes way up. And, and she's just like, I'm going back to People magazine, <laughs> you know? I was like, well, you're putting your head in your sand, but uh, hey, look at that. Did Angelina gain weight? That's amazing. And, uh, and so I kind of like looked over that. I get that because reality is unreality is easier, isn't it? It's easier to exist in a world where actually everything is fair and we don't have to wonder why would God let this kind of stuff happen? And it's interesting because in some ways, the question that an Old Testament prophet of 600 BC asks could not be more relevant for modern times. Because that's essentially the main question Habakkuk asked in this short little book. Where is God when life seems unfair? If you take a look at Habakkuk, you'll notice it's actually three short, very short little chapters. You could read it at the beach in probably 20 minutes. But Habakkuk basically looked at the tragic events in the world around him, and he could understand it. In fact, he opens up with this question in chapter 1. He says this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but what? You do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. He wasn't reading People magazine. This guy was reading the Times. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate what? Wrong. Yeah. It had him shaking his head when he looked at the the, the news of his day. Basically, Israel at this point was fading from its glory days, and they were in a downward spiral, and things were actually getting worse, not better. Violence, corruption were rampant. In Babylon, this wicked, ruthless nation was becoming the dominant world power. And despite the distance of almost 2,000 years, there's an amazing correlation to modern times, isn't there? A recent AP poll actually revealed that ours is the first generation in 50 years where the next generation does not expect their quality of life to be better than that of their parents. We're the first generation. That's new. In the Great Depression, the bottom kind of just basically things tanked and the bottom dropped out. But peace and prosperity kind of went unchecked for decades. But today we're facing this kind of great recession. And our generation is saying, has a new worldview. We are very sobered. And so we don't expect to automatically have this better standard of living than our parents. That's, for the past 50 years or so, that's been assumed, but no longer. There's an awareness that there are these social ills and evils on all sides with no easy answers. I mean, you don't just have global recession, you've got global warming, you've got this intractable violence in the Middle East, terror, hunger. And in fact, as we become more and more aware of what's going on, the injustice in our world, Habakkuk's question, where are you, God, when life seems unfair, is more relevant than ever. That's, that's what Habakkuk's essentially getting at. He's saying, with this, this couple who was murdered with 17 kids, why is it that evil people seem to get away with this stuff? Why is it that when good people step out in the world to actually make the world a better place, and these bad, bad stuff happens to them, they get smacked down? Maybe you're saying that in your personal life. Maybe you're like, yeah, why is it that I work, and I'm like kind of the honest, hard worker, and, and that jerk over there who always kissing up and being unethical, he gets promoted. Or, or why is it the person who, who smokes and abuses his body his whole life lives to be 102 But the great Christian father with three kids, he dies of cancer at age 42. What's up with that? It's so easy and natural, dare I say, to shake our fist at God when something painful happens to us. 
I mean, maybe you've asked, hey, yeah, where's God in my divorce? Or where's God in my mom or my dad's disease? Where's God in my baby's birth defect? Maybe it isn't just physical situation. It could be just as painful. I mean, maybe, maybe you desperately want to have a mate or a partner to go through life with, and you've been working and trusting God. He's going to bring along the right person, grow me, but he hasn't. And yet you look, and your girlfriend or your buddy, who's living completely counter to God's word, seems to have no trouble with relationships. In fact, they have like their pick of the field. Why is that? That's not fair. Or maybe you have been a casualty of the recession. You're, you're under serious financial strain, even when you've been faithful with the little that you've had for so long, while your neighbor, who's never given a dime to help another person, everything he touches seems to turn to gold. That's when the question, where's God, looms large. I mean, hasn't he promised to, to give an abundant life to his children? Where's God when life seems unfair? This is the question Habakkuk poses to God. And understand this. Habakkuk loved God. He had a very rich faith, and he, like so many people, though, at some point in his life, crashed head on into a faith wall. When the things he saw in the world didn't line up with the things he believed, it was a very, very difficult season for him. And some of you can relate to that. We actually know very little about Habakkuk. He was actually one of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. That means he never made it to the majors. He's just in the minors. He didn't get a contract. We don't know a whole lot about... Thank you very much, Chris. We don't know a whole lot about him. <laughs> he was likely a temple musician. Actually, he kind of graduated to priest and then to prophet. But his book stands out, actually, from every other prophet in the Bible. And here's why. All prophetic books... Typically, prophets brought God's word to people. God talked to them and he said, thus saith the Lord, tell my people. But Habakkuk is the only one who's different. He brought people's questions to God. And he had tough questions for God. If you look at verse 1, all of our campuses, help me out here. Let's look at this. We'll read it together. Let's read it out loud. It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. And the word for oracle there is masaw. And it means an utterance, a doom, a burden. Yeah, an oracle was a message for God, and, and basically Habakkuk received this kind of burdensome message, a message that made him go, God, I, I don't want to tell people this because I don't like this, and they're not going to like it. In fact, I'm going to push back against you, respectfully against you, and I'm going to bring hard questions to you, God, instead of just bringing your word to them. And he gets right up in God's grill here in verse 3. Look at this. He says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong?" Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. In other words, in our day and age, he could be saying, okay, God, I don't get it. There there was that that drunk driver on his fourth DUI and he crashes into the car and he kills that four-year-old. What do you have to do about that, God? What's that? What is that? Or or what about that girl who keeps hopping from bed to bed to bed and she gets pregnant and pregnant and aborts a baby over and over and over and I'm a young couple and we are just wanting to have one child and we can't conceive. Where are you, God? Where are you in that? And if you feel there's a little bit of an edge here, indeed there is. Habakkuk was not a happy camper. That's basically what he's saying. He goes on in verse 4, he says, Therefore, the law is what? Everyone together? Paralyzed. And justice never what? Prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Everything's upside down. You trust the bank with your money, and now it's all gone. You elect a man governor so he'll rule justly, and he's off to Argentina for an affair. Corruption. Violence. 
everything is twisted. And, and everything that I look at here, those who do bad get good, and those who, get good, who do try to do good, they get smacked down. I don't get it. Where's God in all this? And you sense there's a tension here, and you would be right. In fact, check this out. Habakkuk's name means to embrace or to what? To wrestle. And we're basically watching in Habakkuk a man, a godly man, wrestle with God. That's what Habakkuk's about. And this is a heavy burden he's carrying. And we're going to struggle. We're going to see him struggle to embrace God in a difficult season in his life. Because the answers God gives are not sitcom solutions, are they? You know what I mean by that, sitcom solutions? How many of you watched sitcoms growing up? I watched the Brady Bunch. What did you watch? What are some of the things you watched? Partridge Family. Thank you. Bell Bottoms. Back in. What else? Awesome. Different strokes. Sanford and Son. Do, 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 do. You guys know the basic formula for a sitcom, how this works, right? You start out with kind of a little bit of humor, and then you introduce this kind of problem or misunderstanding, so there's a little bit of drama or tension. But then, by the end of 30 minutes, including commercials, a simple solution emotionally resolves everything. And it makes everyone kind of laugh, <laughs> and feel relieved. And basically ties everything up with a nice, neat little bow on it. Cut to commercial, life goes on. There are many people in church world who like sitcom sermons. That is, they like a simple solution to life in 30 minutes or less, please. A little humor, maybe a little bit of tension, Tim, just be careful. Uh, end it with a nice poem or a story that kind of makes us cry and feel better, and everything's tied up, and you go on with your, your life nice, and you will not get that kind of message in Habakkuk. In fact, you are going to get quite the opposite. Something that, in my opinion, more resembles real life. <laughs> Tension. Drama. Unanswered questions. So let me lower your expectations because there are no easy answers here. In fact, watch things get more difficult here as Habakkuk leans in and wrestles to God with what he sees. Look at this. He takes these cuffed questions to God. My study Bible says Habakkuk's complaints And what is God's response? He says, you want answers, Habakkuk? (laughs) Okay, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. (laughs) And basically, if you look here in verses 5 through 11, God says, yeah, things are bad, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to raise up the Babylonians, a nation infinitely more corrupt and violent than Israel. And for your good, I'm going to allow them to totally decimate the entire nation. And Habakkuk's like, that's your answer? (laughs) everything's going bad in my world, and your answer is to bring in even worse people to destroy us? I I, I don't get that. Why? Why would you allow that? That's not right. It rocks my world. I struggle with what I see, and I wrestle over what you allow. Habakkuk really had three major beefs with God. (laughs) The first one, essentially, he was saying, God, you don't seem to care, okay? You're letting all these things go on in the world that aren't fair, and so therefore you must not care. Moment of honesty. If you have spent any time in your life praying to God to to respond to a crisis or asking him to change a situation and no response come, what do you you, you think? By default, we we think, we may not even say it, but it nags at us, I don't think, I wonder if God really does care. I know he's loving all and supposed to care, but it sure doesn't seem like it. His second complaint to God is, you know what, you aren't doing much when you could. And there's actually a tone of respect in this because essentially Habakkuk's saying, God, I know you're all powerful and, and I know you could do something. In fact, it's nothing to you. It's, it's little to no effort, just a ding, and you could like change the whole situation, but you won't even do that, and I don't know why. You could be doing so much, but you're not. Number three is what you are doing 
does not seem fair. In other words, Habakkuk looks up at God and says, respectfully, if I were in your shoes, I would do things totally different. (laughs) Honest moment, show of hands here. How many of you have ever thought something like that? Okay, ton of hands, ton of hands. And I'm backing away because here comes the lightning. Flat tires, hemorrhoids tomorrow, you're going to get it. That's what, or, that's what prophets do. Boom, right? Because part of you is like, is it even legal to like ask that question? I mean, to say like, God, I don't, I don't really like think, the way you're doing things. Or, or now is it going to get worse? Because is it really okay to question God that way? It makes us uncomfortable. Because it seems disrespectful if we acknowledge that we have questions. Because maybe either God's going to punish us for having them, or does it reveal maybe a lack of faith on my part? And you know what? Habakkuk says just the opposite is true. Not only is it fair game to question or wrestle with God when life seems unfair, sometimes I would argue that questioning is the on-ramp to the next next level in our journey of faith. Let me show you something interesting that I think may help you apply this in a personal way. I'm indebted to a couple guys, one by the name of Seth Godin, the other guy by the name of Craig Rochelle. Seth Godin is actually kind of, he's like a business guru, writes blogs and, and books. Uh, and he wrote one called The Dip. And basically, in The Dip, he draws this little chart, kind of looks like this. See if you can see what it kind of looks like here. He draws this little chart, and he bases the whole book, and he calls it The Dip. And he basically applies business principles. I want to give him credit for that. But now I want to give credit to Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor friend at LifeChurch.tv. And he says, if you look at that and through the lens of like people's spiritual journey, you're going to have an eye-opening moment here. Because most of us, imagine like right here is where you start when you don't believe any of the Bible. You are a non-Christian. That's where some of you are right now. You're here today, awesome. You're kicking the tires of Christianity, but you're like, I don't know if I believe all that stuff. Most of us started here at some point, and here's what happens. Something happens to our life where we begin talking to somebody, and we're like, wow, maybe there is something more than just me, and I don't know, and then you read a book or something, you're like, maybe there is something to this Jesus thing, and, and then you listen to a message, someone gives you a tape, or you hear it on the radio, and you're like, that is, that is compelling, my gosh, that makes so much sense, and you begin reading the Bible, and then maybe you go to church, and you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that, I think I'm turning into one of them, and you actually make this decision at this moment, and you actually put your trust in Jesus, and you become a Christian, and suddenly your faith Bing! Springs to life. It's actually like in 3D vivid color. You, you, you go to church and you're like, oh my gosh, that sermon was just for me. That was like God talking to me. You open your Bible and things like pop off the page. You listen to music and you're like, oh, that song, it's got me in tears and traffic. And your friends think you're crazy. Because basically I call this, this is the moment kind of where I think we call it where people are on the Jesus juice. <laughs> I'm on the juice, man. I got to tell everybody about it. And your friends are like, oh my gosh, I liked you better before. And there's this kind of this moment where you have this mountaintop experience and it just keeps getting up and to the right and it keeps going better and everything. And then you go to church one Sunday and actually the sermon doesn't really connect with me at all. That's funny. Maybe it's Tim. Uh, you start reading your Bible, but actually none of this makes sense. And, and actually now when I pray, God used to answer every prayer. I mean, he would respond almost. And, and, and now he actually is doing just the opposite because a loved one of mine got sick, or or so-and-so got in an accident, and you know what? It's not turning out the way I thought it would, and you have what Henry Blackaby calls a crisis of belief, and you hit a wall, because what you see going on around you no longer correlates to what you previously believed, and so when what you see doesn't go with what you believe, you wonder actually what you believe in the first place about it, and you basically, people, I think, go one of two directions at this moment. They either are tempted to go back to the mountaintop. I'm in denial. I don't want to go there. 
or they just give up. Go back or give up. The first one is kind of a denial of reality. That's kind of scary to me. You ever have that? Someone is like, they're kind of a Christian, but then things don't start going well. They get a bad report from the doctor, and they're like, no, 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 I'm not sick. I'm not sick. Jesus has healed me. I'm okay. I'm, not, I'm believing. I'm, I'm healed right now. Or I lost my job, but I'm, I'm not going to apply for one because the check's in the mail. It's going to happen. I want to go back here because we love being on the juice, don't we? You know, kind of being on the mountain here. Or if you skew a little bit more cynical, you say, you know what? I don't even know what I believed in the first place. I'm not sure this was even real. Who was I? Maybe my friends were right. They look at me and they laugh because they say, nothing's different in your life. You go through the same stuff. Where's God now? So maybe I never believed in the first place because what I see no longer corresponds to what I previously believed, and so I'm not sure what I believe anymore. Go back or give up. That's where a lot of people stall at the crisis moment. And right now, some of you may be there. How many of you can think of somebody in your life who is there, who is considering it? They're bouncing off the ceiling. They're having kind of a faith collision, and maybe, maybe it's you. Your prayers aren't answered. Well, here's the deal, guys. When you hit this crisis moment where you choose to whether go back or give up, there is a third way. And the third way is actually to say, you know what? I realize my faith is a journey. This is not a metaphor. And as hard as it is, I am going to lean in here and trust God, and here's what's going to happen things aren't necessarily going to get better. In fact, it may get even worse. In fact, it may get even more painful, but I'm going to trust God and hold on as I kind of enter this dip in my journey. And I'm going to trust him because as I do, I believe he's going to show me something new that actually I can't have when everything's going smooth and good, that my faith is not based on circumstances, but needs to be founded in something even more powerful and sound. And that's the very character of God himself. And on the other side of it, you end up at a new level in your faith that you never could have gotten to without having hit it in the dip very, very hard. No one chooses to bottom out in their life. But faith can't just be about things going smoothly or as we wish. Because everything's uncertain. And the only foundation we have here in life is God. Now, here's the deal. Intellectually, I know that was true. But most people who are really, really intimate with God are people who have gone through this season right here. And it's what I would like to call the dip of doubt. Where everything seems up for flux. But going through it, it's not meant to derail us or tank us. But notice, this looks a little bit like something maybe you've ridden on at an amusement park. What? A roller coaster. So when we go down the shore, anyone like roller coasters here? We go down the shore, we rock the Ocean City Boardwalk. And on the Ocean City Boardwalk, there's a caterpillar roller coaster. And I take my little seven-year-old girl on the roller coaster. It's hilarious because she's never been on one before. And so last year, the first time, and when we went up the roller coaster, you know how that goes? It goes, and my little girl's like, and she starts getting all tense. I'm like, oh, Chasey, don't tense up. You got to relax. And she's like, no, and it's like, you know, it all happens. I'm like, no, don't, don't lock arms. Lean in, Chasey, lean in. My little boy is like, lean in. And we lean in and everything because the only thing you can do at a roller coaster is actually you've got to lean in because what happens? It creates momentum to actually slingshot you to the next level in a way that if you resisted, you couldn't even get there. And, my, and it's terrifying. <laughs> but there's a slingshot effect here that actually says, you know what? If I don't go through a dip, I will not go to the next level. And that applies to spiritual physics as well. 
in your life. So while you might never choose it, the dip is actually supernaturally used by God oftentimes to take you to a level that you'd never get through unless you hit a crisis, a wall, where everything collides and what you see doesn't correspond to what you believe. That's the dip of doubt. I know I've been through it. A few years ago when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, boom, it hit me head on. And it was a roller coaster ride to be sure. I've kind of told you out of the blue, my dad, nothing uh, dramatic in my life. And my dad was diagnosed with cancer. He was rushed to the hospital, had a blockage, almost died. And I'll never forget going to the hospital and learning he has cancer and being like, no, no that's, that's not my dad. Because my journey up to that point had been basically up and to the right. My family lived on the Jesus juice, okay? We drank the Kool-Aid growing up there. But when my dad got cancer, boom, we, I had a crisis moment in my journey that I could not reconcile with who I knew God to be. He was always good, always taking care of our family, and now this is happening, and this doesn't work anymore, so I'm not even sure what I believe. And you know what? When that happened, three questions pierced my heart. You might be familiar with them. You don't seem to care, God. Because when I was in the hospital, and I looked at my dad, I said, if you cared about the pain this is causing him and the grief it's causing my mother, you do something. And you aren't doing much when you could. Everything in the Bible, I was bulletproof. I was just like, every healing account made me bitter. Because Jesus just like touched people and they were healed and everything magically changed. So what you're actually doing, God, doesn't seem fair. Because my dad's an incredible godly man. He is a faithful husband. He volunteered in church his whole life. And this is what he gets? But see this. That's what happened. As God led my entire family through this, what I call the dip of doubt, it was a long process. It was almost two years long. And what happened is we learned that my father actually will never be cured of lymphoma. He will, he will only ever be able to have remission. You try to keep that as durable as you can. And we said, if we're basing it on our long-term happiness on that, that's not going to work. So as God led us through this dip of doubt, we actually began coming out on the other side and realizing, I think we're going to have to take things, I think what they call uh, one day at a time. That's another good sitcom. And we began learning that, you know what, we can't base this on how we feel today or this morning or what goes on with my dad because he's having another scan today and it's not good news and it's another test and I don't know. But God, I'm trusting you. He got us through another day. Oh my God, we got good remission. Thank you, God. Literally. Oh, we had bad remission. That's okay, God. We're trusting that it's in your hands and you know exactly what's going on. And we came to rest and realize that our faith is not about how well my father's doing, but about how well my heavenly father holds on to him. When we go through the dip, it is God preparing us for another level of knowing him as our heavenly father who can be trusted in all things. And without that, I know exactly where we would be. Hoping things just keep going, just staying on the juice here. And so we've been, we kind of talk about it that way in my family. Or how, how are we doing leaning into God with dad's? disease. I mean, it's easy to praise God when things are going smoothly, but actually you need God when things are collapsing. And we went to the next level in our trust of God. That dark valley of cancer was the literal slingshot that increased our faith. And now, with my dad celebrating his ninth year of remission, uh, we realized that we could only get there through this dip of doubt. That was the catapult, and without it, our faith journey would be stalled. So far from being the thing that actually sinks our trust, the dip is the very thing that takes you to new heights of faith. Folks, that's how faith works in the Bible. Not in sitcoms, but in scriptures. 
This is why James writes it. You remember, you know that verse in James where he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Trials? What are you talking about? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must complete its work in you so that your faith may be complete and mature, not lacking anything. I want to take you here. But you've got to trust me in the dip. Some of you are stuck right now in the dip. And some of you don't know it, but you're about to go into it. (laughs) Not threatening you. (laughs) But this is the trajectory of faith. Even if it's not a full-blown crisis, something will happen in your life. A friend will get hurt. Someone will betray you. Something happens in your family or at work. And it's going to get you thinking, can I just go back when everything was fresh and new? Or should I just give up altogether? And yet behind the scenes, guys, God is working. And he wants to use this crisis to take you to a next level of faith. If you lean in, lean in, Chasey. Don't resist it. Lean in and embrace him. This is chapter 1 of Habakkuk. There are three chapters. This is chapter 1, and the theme is wrestling. Wrestling with God. Unfortunately, this is also when the majority of people walk away from God in chapter 1. But it can be a critical part of your spiritual journey. Mark this. If you confess, God, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I trust you anyway. I actually trust you enough to come to you with my questions. That's what Habakkuk did. If you go back to our text, God does speak to Habakkuk in the dip. (laughs) But as I mentioned, he doesn't actually get the answer he's looking for. God replies, look at verse 5. He says, look at the nations, Habakkuk, and watch, and be what? Everyone together, utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. The Hebrew word for utterly amazed is tomah. To be alarmed or astonished or marvel. And God's like, basically, when I tell you what's next, it's going to rock you, your world. It, it is literally going to make you stagger and your knees buckle. Look at verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and they promote their own honor. God's answer is this. Habakkuk, you think this is bad? Check this out. The Babylonians, brutal, are going to come in. They're going to crush Assyria. Then they're going to crush Egypt. That's what happened in 630 BC. And then they're going to come after you. The Babylonians slaughtered women and children. That's what they did in their war practices. They enslaved them. Look at verses 8 and 11. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. It's like a biker gang on crack. God says, you think times are bad? When the Babylonians sweep in, they're going to devastate this nation. They love war. They live by the sword, and I'm going to allow it. And God's answer literally set Habakkuk staggering, saying, why, why, why would you allow that? That's not right. That's not fair. But think about this. The fact that God let him ask that question Not only let him ask it, but actually record it, preserve it almost 3,000 years and give it to us is this truth. Only when we're in the dip do the deeper questions of faith come to the surface 
and consequently drive us where? Deeper into the heart of God. That's the truth. This is a very liberating truth, and some of you who are in a crisis or you are in a dip today, I pray this will set you free. Write this down because Habakkuk teaches that a deeply committed believer can have both questions and faith simultaneously. It is possible to have faith in in fears and doubts when you're entering the dip because you're not certain when you're going to hit bottom, but instead of it being the thing that actually makes you go back or give up, if you lean in, lean in, Chasey, into it, God will use it to create spiritual momentum to take you to a next level you'd never get to on your own. Habakkuk begins his book with questions, but you'll notice it's mixed with faith too. Look Look at verse 12. Look at it. He says this. He says, Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, what? We will not die. This is a statement of faith. Even though this seems like the end, I'm believing it's not. Not because of my strength, but because of your character and you are eternal. Oh Lord, you have what? You have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Look at the language he uses. You appointed this, you executed this. It's part of your plans. I'm surprised, but you're not. Even though I don't know what's happening, I realize it's part of your kind of sovereign plan and I'm trusting you in the dip, even though I can't see what's around the corner. Verse 13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Habakkuk's praying and he's like, I know you're a good God and I know your character. You can't tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous ones? Faith questions. Ah, do you hear the tension? Do you see a man wrestling with God? I know what I believe in my heart about your goodness, but my eyes don't see it. My mind can't understand it. I have faith, but but I'm having a hard time getting my arms around this right now. Habakkuk has faith. But he ends verse 13 with a question. Why are you what? Silent. While the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Why God? I don't, I don't understand. Habakkuk teaches us that deeply committed believers can have both questions and faith simultaneously at the same time. And it's not a sign of weakness. But that your faith is about to grow to another level. I'll repeat this because some of you need to hear this word from God. The questions you are wrestling with that you came in with, the crisis you're going through is not evidence that your faith is weak, but that it's about to grow. See, nobody likes chapter one, do they? But Habakkuk is three chapters and it's structured this way. Chapter one is wrestling and chapter two is waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting some more until it seems like you have no patience left. And chapter 3, which we will get to, is actually where we learn to worship. Not for what is happening in our life, but for who God is. But we can't learn how to worship until we wrestle with God and wait him out and see if he'll come through. You will go to the next level. You will know God in a deeper way because of what he is bringing some of you through right now or is about to. And next week we will get to actually chapter two and then three after that. But what do you do for those of you who are today in chapter one? You know what you do? You Habakkuk. You wrestle. You lean in and lock arms. Remember the meaning of Habakkuk's name? What is it? To what? To 
embrace to wrestle. How does a wrestling match begin? You lock arms, you hold on, and you wrestle back and forth. You say, I don't maybe even understand this, but you embrace God and you never let go because no matter what happens, I can promise you this, he will never let go of you. He will never let go of you. Here is where you like the nice little story that kind of sums it all up, and I have none. Because sometimes in chapter one, all you can do is embrace him. Sometimes that's all there is. The reason we can trust Habakkuk in this process is because 600 years after Habakkuk came another prophet who trusted God's hand completely. It wasn't just up and to the right. It became very popular, almost like a movement, until something terrible happened in the sight of everyone who was believing. Something that led to the ultimate injustice that looked like this. And because that prophet suffered on a cross, actually was innocent, was the only sinless prophet to walk the face of this earth, and the worst that the world had to offer happened to him. It happened. And it put him in the grave. You think the disciples were in a dip that moment? They were gone. Because sometimes waiting seems like a good excuse to go back or give up. And they had to wait a whole weekend. But on the third day, chapter 3, they were on the ground worshiping and saying, God, you work everything together for good. Your ways are not my ways. Who would think of such a thing? This is the God of the Bible. This is Jesus, whom we worship. We call him our Savior because on the cross he showed us that suffering is actually the way to new life. There's something about resurrections that require crosses, isn't there? We all like chapter 3. I wish I could live here. But sometimes... This is where God does his deepest work, forming us into the image of his very son, Jesus. And when we lean in, lean in, Chasey, it takes us to a whole nother level we could never get to by ourselves. That's what faith is about. That's what Habakkuk is telling us. Trust God in the dip. There's more. There's chapter three. There is more. Don't go back. Don't ever get up. But trust God in the dip. And like Habakkuk, Embrace Jesus. Push in. God is big enough to handle your questions. Here's where I would love to give you a tidy ending to this and tie it up in a neat little bow and send you out. But sometimes in chapter 1, when you're in the dip, all you can do is hold on. Hold on to Jesus. We'll get to chapter 2 next week and 3 from there. And you may want to go there right now, but tonight you need to stay here with chapter 1 because you need to take a step of faith and actually trust God when you have questions. That's actually how I'd like to end. Not with an answer, but with a question, your question. I mean, let's make this personal. If you had one question that God would answer, what would you ask him? What would it be? It may be like a back against God. Why, why are you letting such and such happen? Or God, how come that all of our campuses, I want to invite everyone right now to take out in your bulletin 
this connection card. Take that out, would you? I want to do an exercise in 10 seconds right now. Your gut reaction. We gave you a pen. That's so you can click it. Let's hear the clicking of the pens. Click, 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 click. Just jot your name real quick here. But on the back, I want you right now in the next 10 seconds to answer this question, your gut reaction. If God would answer just one question, what would you ask him? Just write it down real quick. If you're at church online, just type it in because we're in chapter one right now. And this is an important step in your journey. And we're affirming it's possible to be a deeply committed believer and actually have both faith and questions. Don't be shy. He's not going to be offended. He's not going to strike you down. Ask away. We're going to collect these in a few minutes as we close. And this week, we're going to read every one, and we're going to pray for you, and we are going to pray with you. But as you find the words to write down your question, I'm actually going to invite Dave Pettigrew to uh, perform a song that he wrote. It's an amazing song. It is called Closer to You. And if you listen to the lyrics, I think it captured Habakkuk's questions and maybe what you are wrestling with in a compelling way. Sometimes I feel like you're a thousand miles away Well, deep inside I fight this war The phone line must be down Do you hear me when I pray? Or am I just a thorn that you With so many people reaching out, how can one voice be heard? Above the noise, above the crowd, do you ever hear a single word? Are you really listening? Are you really there? Do you have the answers? Do you really care? I'm lost inside. Help me find a way Lead me closer to you So many things in life Don't work out like we planned So we have love and sympathy But in the hourglass Too many grains
Are you really there? Do you have the answers? Do you really care? This is an important moment for some of you right now. Because this may be the first time that you actually trust God with some of the deepest questions that are in your heart that you've even been intimidated to express. That's what you're doing. This is actually a step of faith to entrust God with your question. I mean, if God would answer one question for you, what would you ask him? Habakkuk had so many. I want to invite you to leave that card on your seat as you leave in a minute. And as I said, we're going to read every one of these because they matter to God, they matter to us. We're going to pray for you and we're going to pray with you by name this week. If you're in chapter one today, know that your wrestling has a higher purpose because God is about to teach you how to truly worship. Jesus shows us that even when the outcome seems uncertain, God can be trusted to use actually our hurts, our doubts, our fears to take our faith to an entirely new level of trust, of intimacy, and security. And it's like, well, why trust Jesus? Because he's been there. Because he trusted the Father. And he walked through the worst that the world has to offer. And he did come out on the other side. And he offers us new life and says, I'll be with you every step of the way. I will never leave you. I will never, ever forsake you ever the next couple of weeks we're going to get to chapter three but today we begin in chapter one with the question what's yours all our campuses let's bow our heads and pray together and bring our questions right now to god father right now you know the questions in this room in the hearts of each person here online you know every specific struggle every one is precious to you so, Father, I specifically pray right now for each man and woman here today who are in chapter 1. God, I pray that as you hold on to them, would you give them the faith, even though clouded with doubts and questions, to just continue to hold on to you and to lean in in the dip right now. Lord, we want to thank you personally for doing something about the evil in this world. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us, to teach us how to be faithful, full of faith, even when life seems unfair. We ask you now, by the power of Jesus' Spirit, to lead us to a place of complete worship. And God, even if we don't see immediate answers now, or have life go as we think, we God, help us to trust you and worship you for who you are, not what's happening in our life. God, I pray for each person who, at this moment, says, I'm in chapter one, would you turn the page Lord, would you be on the other side, lead them to a richer and deeper faith in you that couldn't come any other way. Turn that page for them and let us know your joy when we face these trials like this because we know you're doing something powerful for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said together, Amen. amen. Awesome to be with you guys. I'll see you next week for chapter two.